Let's turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. If you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 49, Genesis 49, and I'm going to read and preach chapter 49, verse 28, down through chapter 50, verse 14. You can see this whole section, as you get there, is about the death and burial of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs of Israel, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The last part of chapter 49 is about the death of Jacob and him telling his sons before he dies to make sure they bury him in the land of Canaan. And the first part of chapter 50 tells us how they carried out his wishes. And the focus in all of this is on how important the land is for the people of God, the promised land. The promised land of Canaan for Jacob and his descendants and the ultimate promised land of heaven for all believers, including us today. And the focus on the promised land in this passage and in particular, Jacob's focus on the promised land right up to the end of his life, I think can encourage us and challenge us to keep our focus on the ultimate promised land as we go through life in this fallen world, to keep our focus on the new heavens and the new earth, which is where we're headed as believers. And we'll consider that together as we look at this passage, but let me pray for us before we begin, and let's pray together. God, we pray for wisdom and insight as we give our attention now together to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word of this part of your word in particular. We thank you for the life of Jacob and all we have learned together from his life, all you've taught us by your spirit. And we pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn from his death and his burial. Teach us especially how to keep our focus on the ultimate promised land of heaven as we go through this life. Help us now by your spirit Give us an eagerness to receive your word and work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 49, verse 28, reading down through chapter 50, verse 14. And I remind us that this is the word of God and therefore it is true and powerful. Chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last And was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. 
And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. As you can see there in your sermon notes, we're going to look first at the death of Jacob, last part of chapter 49, and then the burial of Jacob, first part of chapter 50. But before we're told about his death and his final instructions to his sons before his death, there's a bridge between what we looked at last week and what we'll look at today there in verse 28 of chapter 49. Verse 28, it says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel In other words, all these sons who were just mentioned are who the 12 tribes came from and were named after. And the prophecies spoken to the 12 sons that we looked at last week are ultimately fulfilled in the 12 tribes in the future. This is what their father said to them, the sons, as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And let me just say about that, that might sound a bit strange because some of what Jacob said to them was more like a curse than a blessing, wasn't it? For example, Reuben no longer having preeminence as the firstborn. But I think what we're to understand from this bridge verse is that each of the sons was indeed blessed in some way, perhaps with words Jacob spoke to them that were not recorded for us but they were at least blessed in the sense that they were given offspring, which was part of the promise God made to Abraham. Also, they were part of the covenant people of God, a tremendous blessing. 
And each of them was the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So at least in those senses, they were blessed. Blessed far beyond what they deserved. Which of course is the case with all of us, isn't it? Though we are sinful, God is gracious. And he blesses each of us who are his children with the blessings of salvation through his son. Blessings suitable to our need. But then in verse 29, we come to the main point of this paragraph, which is the final command Jacob gives to his sons. Verse 29, we read, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. That's his final command to his sons. I'm about to die. Bury me with my fathers in the land of Canaan. It's what he'd already said to Joseph, if you'll recall, back at the end of chapter 47. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. And now, with all the sons gathered round, he commands them to bury him with his fathers in the land of Canaan. He gets more specific about where he should be buried and with whom. The where is in verses 29 and 30. He says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And then also down in verse 32, he reiterates the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. That took place back in chapter 23, if you wanna look it up later, chapter 23. And I think there's all this specificity and repetition to underscore the legal right of ownership that Jacob had of this field and cave. In terms of who he should be buried with in that cave, he says in verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, some of the people he would be gathered to. So Jacob commands his sons to bury him with his fathers in the land of Canaan. That is his final command to his sons. And then we read in verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. He died. This is the death of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs of Israel. And there are two things I'd like us to consider here by way of application as we read about his death. And the first is simply the reality of death, the realness of death. We're being confronted with that again here. And that's good for us because we're not confronted with the reality of death very often in our modern world. Sometimes we are, but not often. And Jacob's death here is yet another reminder in this book, in the book of Genesis, of the reality of death as a result of the fall. 
the fall of man into sin, recorded in Genesis 3, is what brought death into this world. Death came into the world through sin, Romans 5.12 says. So death is not natural. It's not just part of the natural order of things. It's part of the curse. It's part of the just judgment of God on our sin, our rebellion against him. It's part of the wages of sin that we've earned, Romans 6.23. And even Jacob had to face death. The great patriarch of Israel and the father of the 12 tribes was not exempt from death because of who he was. No one is exempt from death because of who they are. All people will face death unless Christ returns first. Even believers, even us. And as we read about Jacob's death, it should be an occasion for us to ask ourselves, am I ready to die? Am I ready to die and stand before God? The God who is holy, the God who is just, Ask yourself, have I put my trust in Christ alone for salvation from my sins? Am I ready? Because it's only through Christ that we can be ready. It's only through Christ that we can face death with hope and with confidence because he took the sting out of death. As it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though we will face death, if we've put our trust in Christ, we will be victorious over death. Death will not be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, as it says at the end of Romans 8. Death will be the door to eternal life. That's the second thing we should consider as we read about Jacob's death, not only the reality of death, but the reality of life after death, which is hinted at by the language that's used to describe Jacob's death. It's described as him being quote, gathered to his people. And we also have Jacob's whole focus on the promised land and making sure his sons bury him in the promised land, which we know from Hebrews 11 was Jacob looking forward by faith to the ultimate promised land, the better country, the heavenly country, the new heavens and the new earth. He looked forward to life after death though his understanding of it was limited by where he was in redemptive history. But he looked forward to life after death. And so should we as believers. Because we have so much to look forward to. As our catechism puts it, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And then at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God 
to all eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. And it's because of Christ, our Savior, and what he's done for us. Our best life is not going to be now. Our best life is going to be then. We'll talk more at the end about how we can keep our focus on what awaits us. But for now, let's just take from the death of Jacob a reminder of the reality of death and a reminder also of the glorious life after death that awaits us as believers. Well, after Jacob dies at the end of chapter 49, then we're told about his burial in the first part of chapter 50. Actually, the first paragraph there you can see is about Joseph's mourning and then Jacob's embalming. Let's look at what it says. Verse one tells us about Joseph's mourning. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Such deep grief and emotion and affection for his father. I'm sure the rest of the brothers who stood around their father also mourned, but given the special relationship that Joseph had with Jacob, he's sort of the lead mourner, and he falls on his father's face and weeps over him and kisses him. There is a time to weep and a time to mourn, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4, and a time to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, verse 14. As Christians, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but of course, that shouldn't make us insensitive and unfeeling in the face of loss. Rather, our belief in the sovereignty of God should keep us from grieving as those who have no hope like it talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. We can grieve, truly grieve, as those who have hope. We can grieve as those who trust in the sovereignty of God. And we can know that God puts every single one of our tears in his bottle and writes them in his book, Psalm 56 verse eight, and will one day wipe them all away forever. Revelation 21, four. So in the midst of our losses, we can mourn like Joseph. It's right for us to do so. While we look in faith to the God of all comfort to comfort us in our affliction. 2 Corinthians 1, four. Well, verses two and three tell us about Jacob's embalming after Joseph's mourning. Verse two And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days are required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. So this was likely the Egyptian process of mummification. Given Joseph's high status as the second in command of Egypt, and this was his father, and also given the need to preserve Jacob's body for the long grieving period and the journey to the land of Canaan for his burial. And at the end of verse three, we're told that the Egyptians wept for him 70 days, which probably included the 40 days required for embalming, so 70 days total, 40 for the embalming and 30 for weeping. And I think we can see in this a small fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham back in chapter 12. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In all of this, the Egyptians were blessing and honoring Jacob, not dishonoring him, which I'm sure was a blessing also to Joseph and the rest of the family. 
So even in the midst of the sorrow of Jacob's death and burial, God was fulfilling his good promises and purposes. And then the paragraph that starts in verse 4 tells us first about Joseph's request to Pharaoh about burying his father in Canaan, and then Pharaoh's response in verse 6. And then verse 7, all the way through the end of the paragraph, tells us about the burial itself. Let's look at Joseph's request, verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Joseph asks Pharaoh's permission because he's still under the authority of Pharaoh and in the service of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responds favorably there in verse 6. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And that's what he does in verse 7 and following. And what we have here is what one commentator called the grandest state funeral recorded in the Bible. First, we're told about who went with Joseph, and it was quite a procession. Look at verse seven. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, sort of the who's who in Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, so God's covenant people. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, presumably under some kind of adult supervision. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, so also a military procession. It was a very great company, it says. It was a very great company indeed. Then we're told about another period of mourning that took place once they arrived in the general vicinity of the land. Verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of Egypt. It is beyond the Jordan. And finally, Jacob is buried. Verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So Joseph keeps his promise to Pharaoh and he keeps his promise to his father as he and his brothers buried him in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. So as we come to the end of the story of Jacob, which is actually taken up about half of the book of Genesis, starting all the way back in chapter 25 when he was born. The focus, as I said, is on the land, the promised land. That's what Jacob was focused on right up to the end of his life. That's what he encouraged his sons to focus on implicitly by having them bury him there. 
And as I mentioned, his example encourages us too to keep our focus on the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to how Hebrews 11 makes the connection between the promised land of Canaan and the ultimate promised land of heaven. Verses eight through 10 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then verses 13 through 16 of that chapter. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then chapter 13, verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that's true for us, too, as believers, as God's covenant people today. Here we have no lasting city. We recognize that we are strangers and exiles here. This world is not our home. Our home is heaven. We seek the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're headed as believers. And like Jacob, we should keep our focus on the ultimate promised land, on what awaits us. So how do we do that? I want us to think about that for just a minute or two as we draw to a close this morning. Let me mention four practical ways we can keep our focus on heaven as we go through life in this fallen world. First, read about heaven. First and foremost, read the Bible about heaven. And I don't just mean look up all the verses about heaven and read those, though that would certainly be a profitable exercise. I mean, make sure you have a regular intake of the Bible into your mind and heart. Because that's the main way we grow in heavenly mindedness. Make sure you're eating a healthy diet of scripture and not starving yourself. Read the Bible to grow in heavenly mindedness. Also under this first point, read good books on heaven. How about this? If you're not reading one right now, maybe within the next week, you could get a book going that will help you keep your focus on heaven. Consider that. It could be a book about heaven or perhaps a biography of a heavenly-minded Christian. Let me make a few recommendations. A good place to start would be a little booklet by Jonathan Edwards called Heaven, A World of Love which we have out in the narthex at the ministries board. Or a good book would be Heaven and Hell by Edward Donnelly, which we have on the book of the month shelf out in the narthex. Or John Owen's Spiritual Mindedness, also on the book of the month shelf. 
or any number of the biographies that we have out there, like the one on Robert Murray McChain. Reading good books like these will help us keep our focus on what awaits us. Secondly, sing about heaven. That's what we do so often in public worship. We sing together about the glories that await us because of what Christ has done for us. Like the hymn we're about to sing this morning, Be Still, My Soul, and so many others. Singing about heaven grows a longing for heaven in our hearts. And of course, you can also sing them in family worship, in your home, or even in private worship, uh, either singing the words or meditating on the words in your time alone with God. Thirdly, talk about heaven with each other. Remind each other where we're headed. The Puritan Richard Baxter once said that it's a pity that Christians should ever meet together on earth without some talk of their meeting in heaven. Not that you have to talk about it every time you're together, but just try to understand his point. He says, get then together, fellow Christians, and talk of the affairs of your country and kingdom, and comfort one another with such words. If worldlings get together, they will be talking of the world. When the lawless get together, they will be talking of their lusts. And wicked men can be delighted in talking wickedness. And should not Christians then delight themselves in talking about Christ and the heirs of heaven in talking of their inheritance? Since we are fellow heirs of heaven, shouldn't we talk more about our inheritance? We should, and that will help us keep our focus on heaven. Fourth and finally, in addition to reading about heaven and singing about heaven and talking about heaven, we should, of course, pray about heaven. We should pray to God, asking him to help us keep our focus on the world to come as we go through life in this world. We can praise him and thank him in prayer for what awaits us. We can confess to him our lack of heavenly mindedness. And we can ask him to enable us to set our minds on things above. And we can pray with others, too, about such things here in corporate worship, at prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, in a small group, in discipleship and accountability relationships, in family worship, husbands and wives praying together, parents and children, and so on. We can pray with others, and we can pray ourselves that the Lord would help us keep our focus on heaven. So we can read about it, we can sing about it, we can talk about it, and we can pray about it. So that like Jacob, we can keep our focus on the ultimate land, the ultimate promised land that awaits us as believers. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grow in our hearts a longing for heaven. Make us more heavenly minded. Make us more mindful of where we're headed. Like Jacob was at the end of his life, focused on the promised land. Lord, use these means we've talked about and others to help us grow. And most of all, we thank you for Christ and what he has done for us so that we can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And we thank you in his name. Amen.
Let's take a minute now to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.